Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for this channel. Today, we're talking with Dean Kutlowski about his biography of Paul McNutt, who served as governor of Indiana during the Great Depression and who aspired to succeed Franklin Roosevelt as president of the United States. Dean, welcome to the show. Thank you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Well, I received my Ph.D. from Indiana University in 1998, and two years later, I went to Salisbury University in Maryland as an assistant professor, and I have been there um, ever since. I'm now a full professor. Uh, I've held two Fulbright Awards, uh, one in the Philippines, very related to the McNutt book, and the other in Austria. My, uh, my first book was an edited book on the European Union. My second was uh, an authored book about uh, Richard Nixon called Nixon's Civil Rights, Politics, Principle, and Policy, so in many ways, the McNutt book is a book about Franklin Roosevelt. So I see myself primarily as a political and presidential historian. Okay. Uh, what was it that led you to McNutt as a subject? Well, an opportunity came available to do a biography of him, uh, to go back to Indiana and to, to write this book. And McNutt was a graduate of Indiana University. His papers were there. And so I seized the opportunity. And I felt that he really was a good lens to study that whole era of Franklin Roosevelt because he had so many different positions at both the state level and the national level that where you could really sink your teeth into the New Deal, liberalism, the FDR government and its internal dynamics, World War II, decolonization, and even the beginnings of the Cold War. Yes, the book really is not just a biography of McNutt. It's really the times in which McNutt lived. And as you describe, he had a very active life. He traveled the world. He was engaged in various levels of both domestic and foreign policy. And reading it really made me, it left me surprised that we don't talk more about him as a figure of the era. Right. We really don't. He's really forgotten. I think that that's the price you pay when you are a presidential aspirant who never gets either the presidency or the nomination of a major political party for the presidency. And I, I think too, his career is a very difficult person to describe when people ask, what are you working on? You say Paul V. McNutt and, um, uh, uh, you know, nobody know, remembers him anymore. And then you try to pin down, well, what did he actually do? Well, he did so many things. I mean, he was governor of Indiana. He was high commissioner of the Philippines head of two major wartime agencies, talking about World War II, mm-hmm. and much earlier in his career, dean of the Indiana University School of Law, uh, state and national commander of the American Legion. So um, he's easy to miss. And I think, Mark, because he did so many different things, a biographer had to be schooled or had to be willing to school themselves in so many different areas of public policy, so many different levels and types of politics that maybe people just figured it wasn't worth it. And um, so a, a, I think a major scholarly biography was, was something that, that needed to be done. There was one that was done in the 1960s. It was by a, uh, a, univer- uh, a small college professor in Indiana, and it, it was tightly focused on him, and it was on a small press. And it was rather hagiographic. I know I, I might be seeming impolite and sort of criticizing the, the predecessor to me, 
but um, there was a need that Indiana University felt for a biography of him that was that was more up to date, that was more contextual, and that was to some extent more critical and analytical. And uh, it was there, and and I decided to to do it. I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about his uh, family and his childhood. I mean, did he come from a very established family? Did he uh, rise up from poverty? What was that like, and how did that shape his uh, life? Family was comfortable, middle class, not tremendously wealthy. Um, the parents did not go to college, but they had what we would call professional careers. They both had been teachers. And then his father, like a lot of teachers, became a lawyer. And his mother uh, became a homemaker. And uh, the father also was a, uh, his father, John C. McNutt, was a, a minor state official who had uh, political aspirations. He was very close to his father. The father provided the the, uh, the nurturing, I think, in a lot of ways, and they shared a love of politics. In Indiana, the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, they were Democrats. Whichever party you were, it was like joining a religion or being part of a particular religious denomination. You had a sense of loyalty to it, but you also respected the other denomination or the other parties. Partisanship was understood. What was not understood was nonpartisanship or a kind of political independence. So um, uh, there were some tensions with his mother. Um, she was a little bit strict. Uh, I don't think there were an immense amount of family problems or anything like that. Uh, he was an only child. Uh, the family was interested in success. He, he, and they had the means to send him to Indiana University. And then they borrowed money to help send him to Harvard Law School. So his education for somebody, you know, um, let's say from the Midwest, of a kind of middling, maybe lower middling background was, 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 um, was pretty impressive in terms of what he was able to attain. A postgraduate degree from Harvard definitely set him apart from most people of that time. What was interesting about reading about his education was both reading about his engagement with the community of students. He was very socially active, as you described, but also you make him seem as though he was just a little bit of a goody two-shoes in uh, his dealings with uh, it, uh, administrators and, 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 and uh, older uh, uh, educators. There may have been a little bit of a smarmy teacher's pet persona in terms of his cultivation of the president of Indiana University, William Lowe Bryan, at the time. But he certainly was a very, I, I mean, uh, Robert Caro in his biography of, of, of Lyndon Johnson the first volume, The Path to Power, pays a lot of attention to LBJ's collegiate career, are, are arguing either explicitly or implicitly, I don't really remember, that um, the college years really kind of, you can see the emergence of a political figure that is going to become much more evident later on in life. And that was certainly McNutt. He was president of the, the student union, um, the senior class, editor of the newspaper, not particularly a, a good athlete, although he did play baseball, I believe, in his freshman year. But you had that. And, um, you know, he was kind of squeaky clean throughout his life. You, you know, there's a kind of innocence about him. He's going to get married during World War One when he's in his late 20s. That seems to be the only woman he ever loved in any sense uh, of the word. 
And um, yeah, he he was a, a kind of straight up guy, and 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 maybe that kind of separated him from other people and made him down the road a, a less likable political figure. Maybe he didn't have the kind of obvious human foibles outside of a fierce ambition that people could relate to. And I'm not sure they could relate to the fierce ambition, but I think you know what I mean. Certain imperfections. He was tremendously good looking, good speaker, um, very, very intelligent, but not, you know, overly intelligent or overly bookish. <coughs> so it's, it's almost a little bit like the kind of political figure from central casting that you would think of for maybe the media age, the television age, he's before television. But you really see that in a lot of the still photos. He has a very uh, erect bearing. He seems very uh, handsome and, and, and he knows it, but he doesn't flaunt it. So he is the kind of person, and you quote a lot of people who, who talk about this, who are really struck by his presence. He's not necessarily, uh, uh, you know, you know, you know, hypnotically charismatic in, in, in the way that, say, uh, you know, uh, somebody like uh, you know Adolf Hitler was. But at the same time, he was a person who a lot of people looked at, and they saw a leader in, in terms of his bearing and the way he conducted and the way he looked. It wasn't just how handsome he was, which people talked about over and over again. But that he, you know, he was tall. So when you mentioned presence, I think that that's a good thing to stress. He was a very, very good public speaker. But like you said. It's it's not like he got universal acclaim for his public speaking either. Some people could have found it or did and really did find it a little maybe at the national level a little corny, a little you know stiff, um, not taking too many chances. This became a little bit of a problem when he became a presidential candidate. He was a big hit as a speaker in Indiana, and I think to average people. And when he went around the country later on, and so, uh, oh, he go ahead, go ahead. He Project he, whether or not he was a leader, he projected a kind of leadership that a lot of people, on a surface level, and it's very interesting in politics how much of it is surface, uh, were drawn to him. You described how very quickly he tried to start a career in politics. Right out of Harvard Law, he goes back. He runs for uh, a county attorney position, and, and and he seems to be very eager to embrace that. So, did he? often have a, uh, did, did he have a, 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 a political ambitions from an early age? And how high was he shooting even at that point? I don't think he did. Um, I, I think that he, that he was multi-talented. And at various points in his career, and I took this seriously, others might, you know, disagree and think that he was a political animal from, from birth, literally. But I think that there were opportunities to do other things like, you know, in writing, journalism, these sorts of things. But it's also fair to say that politics was was up there. At what point it really kind of developed in terms of a serious interest in the presidency? Um, I don't know, probably in the 1920s, maybe the late 1920s, he could think seriously about it. Um, I talked to somebody who had written on McNutt many years ago, who sort of bought into the idea that his mother had groomed him for the presidency since birth. Now, I think that that's really not true because the family had no history of aspiring to the presidency in a real, any kind of realistic way. Um, but, um, but, but, but he, the, the family, I mean, Indiana, I mean, people talk about Iowa, the Iowa caucuses and how Iowans, there's nothing like Iowa in terms of politics, but Hoosiers have been very, very actively engaged in politics. 
this was a family that was actively engaged and interested in politics. And, you know, at, at, a political career was always in the cards. At what point the presidency really gets into his head, I'm not sure. Again, I think maybe a little bit more in the late 20s and early 30s is my best guess. You mentioned how his uh, father, even uh, when uh, Paul was uh, a young man just starting out his legal career, his father, John, was still aspiring for various offices in Indiana that he ran for a uh, position on the, uh, I think it was the state Supreme Court, and how he seemed a bit more uh, frustrated than successful in terms of those ambitions. Uh, do you think that um, Paul sort of sublimated some of his you know, thinking about his own career in politics until his father had sort of exhausted that? Or do you think his father may have shifted to Paul when his ambitions got uh, left out? Because that relationship really does seem to run consistently throughout the book, right up to the point when John dies, which is fairly uh, late in, in Paul McNutt's uh, political career. Uh, I think it's very hard to know some of the details of the dynamics of the relationship and to what extent was there a passing of the torch or of the baton and, you know, McNutt's, Paul McNutt subordinating himself to his father. Um, I, I think people back then, and in his case, this was certainly true, were very deferential to their parents. And he was very young when his father was seeking these offices. And uh, I think the father was a little bit surprised to see how, how quickly and how well uh, McNutt did, particularly early in his career. Uh, he goes into veterans politics, uh, becomes state commander of the Indiana Legion, uh, and he becomes really a national figure in 1928 when McNutt is elected national commander of the American Legion. And I'm not sure that his father, John C. McNutt, saw that thing happening quite that way. And uh, by that point, though, they could seriously consider what the next steps were going to be. And there is some correspondence in there. You know, this is fathers and sons writing about when he might run for governor. But again, very, very early in his life, I don't think that they were necessarily thinking along those lines. You mentioned the American Legion, and that gets to uh, an event that you talk about in the book, which really does seem to be a very defining event for Paul McNutt, and that is his service in the First World War. I was wondering if you could uh, tell us a bit about what that service was like and how that both shaped him and how that led to his uh, involvement with the American Legion. Well, like Wendell Wilkie, who was McNutt's fraternity brother, and you could say somewhat like a friend at Indiana University, the war shaped both men and a lot of men of that generation Indiana politics made these guys aware of state and national domestic issues, and the war gave them a consciousness of events overseas. And so you can start to see the shaping of McNutt's ideas about America's place in the world and about the responsibilities of citizens to their national government in times of national emergency or war. And he, was, he became very much the sort of person who believed in a strong national defense, a lot of civic engagement, uh, a realistic foreign policy, okay, where the U.S. would assert itself and not completely devoid from ideals. 
But I think that strong national defense, I mean, this is sort of the origins of the Cold War liberalism that we would see under Truman, Harry Truman, and then certain Democratic senators like John F. Kennedy, Henry Scoop Jackson of Washington State, and there's a little bit here even of neoconservatism, if you want to push this a little bit further. There's a strong anti-totalitarianism and anti-communism in him. And although Germany in the Great War was not exactly a totalitarian state, and certainly not along the lines of the Nazis, we not through these sorts of parallels by the time the Nazis do actually arrive. So it's, it's very interesting. It was very formidable. And just in terms of the uh, his uh, the World War One's influence on him, it uh, it gets him out of Indiana, as did Harvard Law School. But here it allows him to become a little bit more of a shaper of men. He sees more of the country. He gets married to his wife Kathleen, who is not from Indiana, and he meets her at a dance near an army base in Texas, and they marry very quickly afterwards. So uh, you know, tremendously important. For him and for members of his generation, it really seems to that that commitment that he has to it, that uh, importance it has to him, really does seem to be reflected in the commitment that he makes to the American Legion. Because you describe that he benefits from it, but he also invests an enormous amount of time and effort into the American Legion while he has this career at Indiana University School of Law, while he has this young wife and this young daughter. He nonetheless takes the time to travel extensively and, and campaign for offices. It really does seem to you know, matter a great deal to him. It's the sort of thing you could do back then with a great deal of exhaustion. When the country had interurban trains and where he could sleep on a train after giving a, a talk in a certain locale in Indiana and sleep on the train and arrive in Bloomington ready to teach his classes. I mean, it's not something that most people would want to do. It's not something that necessarily I would want to do. I, I could do it a little bit. Not over a series of years to the, and not repeatedly. And you would hear stories about when he was running for governor, he would be finishing a lecture and literally walking out of the classroom as he was finishing his lecture so that he could get onto a mode of transportation that would get him to a campaign appearance somewhere in Indiana. It really, really was striking. I wonder if you could speak a bit about his marriage to Kathleen and their daughter, because you describe a a, a marriage in which you, you have a devoted wife who makes a lot of sacrifice, but you also uh, talk about the sacrifice that, that Paul has to make in a way in terms of accommodating her views and how that plays out in terms of their life and in terms of their daughter. Well, I think from his point of view, it was a good, solid marriage, and it was very conventional. And it worked for him. He loved her dearly. They fell in love. Tensions, of course, develop later. I mean, the honeymoon, it does end at some point. But he was rather shy, and she was quite sociable. I mean, she, she was a kind of social type like Mamie Eisenhower. These were small-town, quote-unquote, girls who were the sons or the, excuse me, the offspring of wealthy men in a small town. And then they went off to finishing school and were expected to marry and marry well, usually within that small town or small community or small city. And she married somebody, she was that type. She married somebody from 
a very different place. She was born in Minneapolis and um, educated in Texas. And um, uh, she made him aware of people in ways that he oftentimes wasn't. He was a little bit shy, like I said, a little bit stiff. He came alive when he spoke publicly. Kathleen said that Paul spoke better on his feet than on his seat, <laughs> meaning that he was not exactly, he was not exactly the best, you know, round table dinner companion. So the marriage worked. I think a lot of the sacrifices were made by Kathleen. She did not like politics. And that made me, that coming up over and over again, made me very attuned to more recent presidential and political wives not being attuned, not, not, not liking politics. So I'm a little bit more sensitive. And I think I can detect this uh, aided by my intense study of, of the McNutts. The tensions that arose in the marriage were religious tensions. She was a Christian scientist who really didn't believe in, uh, in medical care. She believed in prayer over medical care in terms of healing sickness. And it became a crisis point somewhat in the marriage when their daughter was diagnosed with tuberculosis of the spine. And she had to spend uh, a number of years. The daughter's name was Louise. As a young child, she had to spend a number of years uh, essentially confined to a bed and then later strapped to a board and moved around the neighborhood for fresh air. The terrible, terrible situation. And I also did some analysis in the book of comparisons with Franklin Roosevelt. Now, McNutt was not afflicted with the disease. Roosevelt was afflicted with another disease, infantile paralysis. But it's very interesting that two of the most notorious diseases of that era, tuberculosis and infantile paralysis afflicted both families, changed to some extent the dynamics between the husband and the wife, and delayed the entrance of both men into politics to their advantage. Very, very interesting. You described that the, uh, at the time that Louise is suffering from uh, spinal tuberculosis and, and, and recovering, that uh, McNutt is you know, focused upon his work with the Legion, his uh, time as dean of the Indiana University School of Law. And, but you, and you describe how that's a good uh, point of time to be engaged in those activities because, as you explain, Indiana politics in the 1920s is very much of a Republican world. It's a Republican world. And then the, with the crash in 29, the Republican world comes crashing down. And that opens up all sorts of opportunities for McNutt. Arguably, it opens up a little too many opportunities for him. In 1932, he easily gets the gubernatorial nomination. You know, that had been waiting for him for a while. And yet it also encourages him to maybe reach a little bit for um, something on the higher shelves, the presidential nomination. And he doesn't support uh, Franklin Roosevelt's campaign. He and his followers at the 1932 Democratic Convention when you needed two-thirds of the votes of the delegates, when Franklin Roosevelt was short of the two-thirds of the vote needed, and when Franklin Roosevelt subsequently and resultantly needed every single vote that he could get. He didn't get Indiana's votes until basically the third or fourth, actually it was the fourth ballot, and um, uh, uh, it was extensive too little too late when Indiana finally came around. And the Roosevelt people, led by his campaign manager and future Postmaster General, Democratic National Committee Chair James A. Farley never forgot that. 
that relationship between uh, McNutt and Farley was almost as fascinating as the one between McNutt and Roosevelt, because as you describe in the book, Roosevelt from 1933 onward is always in a, in a dominant position. And, and, you know, McNutt has to rely upon Roosevelt, whereas Farley seems to be much more of a direct competitor. And that they're, they're kind of working towards the same goal. And you point out the, the times in which Farley really does try to uh, undercut McNutt so as to, you know, eliminate the competition. Farley was, I think, a little too big for his britches. Uh, Farley only held one elected office. He, he had been, I believe, in the New York State Senate. Uh, he was in the cabinet. Postmaster General was a cabinet position back then. He was head of the Democratic National Committee, head of the New York State Committee. But he wanted to move right from those positions into the presidency. And even Roosevelt didn't think that that was such a good idea, that he didn't have the kind of broad views in terms of policy. I think he meant foreign policy to really be president. So um, so Roosevelt, you know, used Farley as he used McNutt. And Farley really saw McNutt as a kind of competitor, like you say, for the Democratic nomination in 1940, which everyone figured, especially if you think of the early and mid-1930s, everyone figured that it would be two terms for Roosevelt and that's it. And so that's where the intensity and the dislike, I think, comes from with these two guys. Also, you know, McNutt was better looking and had a better head of hair. <laughs> and, and I couldn't document this, but I, I think that that sort of rankled Farley a little bit. All of this attention and all of this sort of stuff uh, about McNutt's looks. And then, you know, McNutt, it was part of a, a sense that, that McNutt was a matinee idol sort of star in the Democratic Party, an up-and-comer. And you, you got to put yourself in Farley's shoes. It's almost like, well, like I, I'm Farley and I'm doing all this work for Roosevelt and I'm, uh, you know, something I'm not being thanked for it. And mm-hmm. it, it's it's a little bit like some of the listeners there out there uh, you know, who are in academic positions, you know, the, the star researcher, publisher in a department, and then the person who's doing all the committee work and the service work, you know, you get that kind of dynamic going on here. And um, Farley did all that he could to try to under, like you said, undercut McNutt, remind Roosevelt that McNutt had not supported him in 1932. But Roosevelt wasn't going to just listen to Farley and do whatever Farley wanted. Roosevelt found ways of of using Farley, using McNutt, and using them against each other. That was interesting. That was well. interesting as well. How you integrate into their relationship the fact that Roosevelt himself was not a sure thing in 1940, and he always had to worry about who it was that he would might that he might face, uh, who it was that might try to challenge him in such a way that might deny him the nomination. So you do see, you do describe how how those those uh, you know how Roosevelt is as concerned with McNutt as Farley is. Well, you know what? I, 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 I would dial that back just somewhat and that I think Roosevelt was going to win the nomination no matter what. Now, that doesn't mean that Roosevelt was infinitely secure like we always think that he is. And where I think the book makes a contribution to Franklin Roosevelt's personality is that he never really had to deal with somebody like Paul McNutt, who was essentially a dealer and a liberal, although with an, a base in Indiana as governor independent of Roosevelt. 
And really, it's around 1937 when McNutt becomes High Commissioner of the Philippines and starts to take positions in the New Deal administration, the Roosevelt administration, that the dynamic and the power that Roosevelt has over him changes. So, um, again, getting back to my point, McNutt was, was young, he was handsome, he had his own power base, and there was a kind of jealousy there, I think, on the part of Roosevelt, or a discomfort, if you will. And like I said, there was nobody like that in Roosevelt's life. All of the kind of cabinet positions, people, uh, possible heirs to him in 1940 were Roosevelt acolytes. And part of the problem of these people, like Harry Hopkins, who was Secretary of Commerce by 1940, and Robert Jackson, who was Attorney General uh, by, uh, by around 1940, or Solicitor General, uh, Frank Murphy, even uh, attorney general, all of them were too close to Roosevelt and almost too subordinate to Roosevelt to make plausible presidents. McNutt was different. He was a kind of plausible president. As you described, McNutt has that reputation of being a new dealer and it's a reputation that he doesn't earn in the Roosevelt administration. He earns it separately during his governorship in Indiana. I was wondering if you could take a, a couple minutes to explain his governorship, what he did during it, and the reputation that it gave him, not just within Indiana, but nationally. Well, he was a tremendously powerful and effective governor of Indiana who essentially put forward what we would call today a little New Deal. Now, not everything was quite New Dealish, but it was all reformist. Um, there was a gross income tax, a major reorganization and streamlining of government, which created a budget surplus, something that Roosevelt was never able to do at the national level, simply because his responsibilities were different. Um, but the, he wrote, uh, McNutt enacted things like old age pensions, banking reform and regulation. Um, early efforts to repeal prohibition that again mirrored Roosevelt and a lot of cooperation with the Roosevelt administration and the various agencies like the works progress administration, the civil works administration, both of those along with the federal emergency relief administration uh, were responsible for work relief projects in Indiana to give unemployed people a job. And then a very, very, very fascinatingly and unlike um, some other governors, McNutt got behind the social security act quickly and enthusiastically. So there's no question in my view he was a new dealer. The one thing that that, that, that kind of bothered people about McNutt, well, there, were, there was one thing and then there was another thing. The one thing was, from the standpoint of, of new dealers, is that he did use um, the, uh, the National Guard to restore order or to break a strike, depending on your position, in Terre Haute, Indiana, where there was a general strike in 1935. That bothered um, New Dealers. Uh, New Dealers were also bothered by him establishing a kind of political machine in Indiana based around patronage and something called the 2% Club, where state patronage employees would be expected to donate back to a McNutt organization, and they would give 2% of their annual income. Okay? So... um, I don't think uh, the 2% club was really kind of something that people thought was a little odd. I I don't think that the New Dealers had any right to be offended by machine tactics, though, because the Roosevelt Roosevelt administration worked very, very closely with all kinds of political machines across the country. And 
to some extent, those machines benefited from some of the work relief and other things. But in the long term, the national government under Franklin Roosevelt took over a lot of the social welfare functions that local and citywide machines had been doing uh, up until the New Deal. So it's sort of a short-term assistance for some of these machines and a kind of a long-term decline as the liberal state emerges. And McNutt's machine, for lack of a better word, really is very effective in terms of not just giving him this victory, but as you described, the Democratic Party does very well in Indiana in the 1930s. And this enhances his reputation as well. well. Absolutely, absolutely. And you did ask about what that governorship meant nationally. He does start to get national attention. Okay, as, as you know, um, perhaps the strongest governor in, this, in the country, this is the period after Huey Long has left Louisiana's governorship for the Senate of the United States. And it's before Frank Murphy becomes governor of, uh, of Michigan. So he's he, McNutt is in a nice position because a lot of those governors, and he can only serve one term. He can't succeed himself. That's a little bit of a, a sticking point for his career. But he's in, like I said, he's in a very very nice position because it's the early New Deal. He can do a lot of creative policy making, and um, and get a lot of support and get a lot in Indiana and a lot of attention, and um, and 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 yeah, he's able to get his successor, his Democratic successor elected in 1936. He gets, um, he gets Roosevelt. Uh, to, he, uh, his campaigning helps Roosevelt get uh, to carry Indiana in the 1936 election. And, uh, you know, he's, he's moving onward and upward. And he's looking for a cabinet position, and then what Roosevelt offers him is something a little less than that, high commissioner to the Philippines. And if it's lemons he gets, he make, manages to make lemonade out of them. That does seem to be a, that does seem to be a big factor, big factor in why Paul McNutt doesn't become president, though, is that he is in the situation where he is elected in 1932. He can serve that one term. And after that, it, how does he stay viable for the next four years without, at some point, Bernie Chosa? Well, there was talk about him becoming president of the university, but that would have looked to a lot of people like a step down. He could have represented and challenged a conservative senator in Roosevelt's whole campaign in 1938. He didn't want that. It was probably something he could deal with that senator. Roosevelt didn't like it. Okay? So he's, he, he really becomes much more dependent upon Roosevelt for, um, for, uh, for advancing politically, if not to the president's level, just simply for positions that move him up and make him visible. And I just think that was the ranking U.S. official in America's largest colony. Um, the high commissioner sort of was there. The the power of little egg, almost like a super ambassador uh, and an administrator. The Philippines was under vote independence, and it had its own elected president. And the high commissioner was there just to kind of monitor things, make sure everything was running steady, making sure that the Philippines didn't engage in its own foreign policy, which was prohibited. That was still the U.S. sphere until 1946, when independence happens. But uh, the high commissioner position allowed McNutt to have some foreign policy credentials, right? So he'd be able to see the crisis in East Asia with Japan up close. But for Roosevelt, it was also a way of exiling him, sending him out of the country, away from Washington politics. And that turned out to be good for McNutt. 
because the second term of Roosevelt wasn't all that pleasant. With Supreme Court packing, fight over his own reorganization plan, sit-down strikes, and then an increasing crisis overseas with especially Europe, but also obviously Japan as well. That also that also opens up for McNutt an opportunity to save hundreds of Jews. And you spend a certain amount of space discussing this very remarkable episode where at a time where there is a lot of restriction about uh, allowing Jews to come to the United States to emigrate to other countries to get out of uh, Europe, that McNutt makes it possible for hundreds of them to find uh, a safe space in, uh, in the Philippines. It really was an amazing story. And um, again, I, it, it's so rich. I don't want to go into all of it right now. I could you know, talk uh, at, at, at considerable length, all of the strands in his background that would have led him to do this. I think there was a certain amount of sympathy for the persecuted. I think there was a sense of public service that this was something that he could do, so he would do it. Um, it was done in a way that was low-key. And yet that he could brag about a little bit later on if he wanted to. I think that that was very politically astute. But, yeah, he does stand out. He really does. And at a time when we see memories of the Holocaust uh, so prominent in American culture, in films, in books, um, in memorials, in museums, Washington, D.C., and you see this elsewhere, um, it was something that earlier biographers had missed and it was coming to the forefront just as I was beginning the book. It was a perfect timing. And it, it, it was good that it came at the beginning of this study. So it, it, it shifted my focus somewhat or made me more conscious when I did the research, anything that had to deal with Jews, I was all over. So, uh, you know, a form letter, what would seem to be a, a routine constituency response to a Jewish group took on added importance, and I gave added weight to it. You mentioned that Roosevelt sent uh, Nick Nutt into exile in a way, but McNutt does come back prior to the 1940 election, and he does, you know, make this effort. And what surprised me when I read your book is that in, you don't necessarily hear about McNutt in other accounts of the 1940 presidential election. It's setting aside the, you know, the central question of Roosevelt's decision to go for a third term. The names you usually see are uh, John Nance Garner, Roosevelt's vice president, uh, James Farley's mentioned, Cordell Hull is mentioned, and, and oftentimes it seems as though McNutt gets written out of the uh, of the uh, drama, the narrative of, of of what happens in 1940. That's true. He comes back. He's appointed head of the brand new federal security agency, which oversees much of the New Deal. It had been formed out of Roosevelt's reorganization plans, the one that he got through Congress. It is the forerunner of the Department of Health, Education and Welfare and the Department of later Human Health and Human Services. But you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Partly it was because McNutt ran a qualified campaign for the nomination, saying, in essence, um, I'm for the I'm I'm available and I'm running if the president isn't. Well, the president never said whether he was running or whether he wasn't running, and that's part of the book, too. I you know looked through a lot of documents, I ferreted out things, and I was able to come up with a time when I thought Roosevelt had decided to run for a third term. And without going into all the details of it, I I, I located 
very late 1939, early 1940, not in the spring of 1940 after the Nazi invasion of Western Europe or the summer when Roosevelt is renominated. So it's a little bit earlier, and it essentially renders McNutt's presidential campaign MOOC. And that's, that's, there's a, a chapter called Paul V. and Franklin D. that goes through this. I carry it through in the next chapter that's called Ambition Frustrated, because his presidential ambitions were frustrated, and then his ambition for vice president was frustrated when Roosevelt picked Henry Wallace, who was not terribly beloved of the delegates at the 1940 Democratic National Convention in Chicago because Wallace uh, had historically been a Republican. He was seen as a little too dreamy-eyed and lofty, rather aloof, not terribly one of the guys. And um, McNutt seemed uh, a good alternative. They packed the galleries, his people did, with supporters who rooted on McNutt, but he withdrew. He was deferential to his father. He was deferential to, uh, to generally speaking, the established order throughout his career. And he was deferential to Roosevelt, not in 1932 when they were competitors, but in 1940 when he was his commander in chief. So he bowed out. And I should. And, 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 you know, when people think of that convention, they think quite rightly of Eleanor Roosevelt making the speech in an ordinary time, smoothing the, you know, things over so the delegates would accept Wallace. But McNutt is lost from that. And at that point, as you, and at that point, as you described, his political career really is on this downhill slope. And he's not even 50 years old. And he's not even really aware of it completely. I think maybe he is on some level. He's, you're right, he's not at 50 years old. He's 49 years old in 1940. And uh, I, I think with people of that age that's still relatively young, you still think you have a future. And somebody had told me that McNutt said to his chief political aide, we can try again next time. And supposedly the aide said, no, this was your best chance. Now that was looking back, you know, I went with the story there, um, but, but it was true. That was the chance of a lifetime. And four years later, he was kind of the forgotten man. And eight years later in 1948, there was a small, pathetic, rather spontaneous effort to try to remind people that eight years late, earlier there'd been this guy and to put his name in nomination and it went nowhere. I think he got one half of one vote in 1948. Now, <clears throat> partly his political downfall came from the fact that during World War II, he essentially became an administrator, mired in bureaucratic politics, which was not really where he excelled. And it was not something that where he was going to really benefit politically. And yet you describe how after the he war, still he still performs this, performs this very remarkable service where he goes back to the Philippines mm-hmm. and he participates in the, in the transition, it completes the transition of the Philippines from, uh, you know, their recaptured, you know, po- you know, late colonial status to being an independent country and how in many ways McNutt sets the stage for the U S relationship with the Philippines during the cold war. Absolutely. And, you know, before the, I mean, in, in the, the second go round in the Philippines, there's a lot of accomplishments, right? I mean, whether you agree with them or not, um, trade deals, military bases deals, things that McNutt negotiates helps to push through. 
they really do define a kind of neo-colonial, neo-imperial relationship uh, between the United States and the Philippines. The war years were years of frustration because it wasn't things with the Federal Security Agency to help get Americans more physically fit and prepared and ready for war, avoiding venereal disease, having kind of recreation for war workers and soldiers. That's fine. I mean, that's low-level stuff. He also, on his own, wanted to head the brand-new War Manpower Commission. And he sought the office, and it was a miserable assignment. Manpower, human resources, workers, human beings to work or to fight, all of these sorts of things, intensely valuable, precious commodity, fought over intensively or intensely between uh, the civilian chiefs and the military chiefs and the government and in the wider economy. And uh, he had a referee and he did not master the problem as well as he could have. So really going back to the Philippines, there's a cartoon in there. It's like of, of, of uh, McNutt leaving Washington with a great deal of relief, you know, just almost like a breath of fresh air to get back to a place that's familiar to him. And as you said, he, it, was, it was quite a set of accomplishments in the Philippines, although not necessarily to the benefit of the Philippines, but certainly to the benefit of the United States. And as you described, it, it, it kind of lends that point you mentioned earlier, which is how McNutt is, in one sense, this, uh, if you will, a missing link. In, uh, in in post in in uh, 20th century American liberalism between the New Deal of the 1930s and the Cold War, because if you going back to uh, his time in the American Legion, as you write about in the book, he is very uh, much at the forefront of opposing communism, of of talking about Americanism, and in that sense, he would have been ideally suited to assume that role of of of, of rebutting uh, what you saw in the uh, Red Scare in the late 1940s. And yet, and yet that's the moment at which he leaves politics. Exactly. It's like the man in the moment met and he was already exiting the stage. In part, um, he didn't fail at the War Manpower Commission, but he didn't succeed spectacularly in politics. So much of the perception is you have to be succeeding constantly and moving ahead. I, I think what you say about him in terms of being the, the missing link, I mean, the um, and what I've said in the book about this sort of missing link idea, the the Harry Hopkinses, the Francis Perkins, the New Dealers, Harold Dickies, uh, even to some extent Henry Wallace, they weren't around to fashion the policy of containment <coughs> under Truman. They either had left the stage, Hopkins was dead, Wallace was not agreeing with it, um, and uh, and and then the the real architects of containment were diplomats. Um, people who had been in private industry, bankers, they were not new dealers, okay? So uh, McNutt spans both of them. He's one of the few that does. He was perfectly positioned to, let's say, 1948 or in 1952, when he only would have been 61 years old, have been the Democratic nominee, and yet he's, he's off the stage. Think about it. He's, he's, he's younger than Truman. He's seven years younger than Truman. And he's younger than Adlai Stevenson, or older than Adlai Stevenson, nine years older, and uh, certainly older than John F. Kennedy. So he's there, and you know it's it's just not there for him in terms of uh, having a you know an ascending political career. He was a descending, kind of declining political figure. 
And as you, as you, as you describe, his health wasn't great. He was a heavy yeah. smoker. He drank a lot. Yeah, that, that culture of, of people of that age in that era, it was a heavy drinking, smoking culture. And he succumbed ultimately to cancer of the esophagus. And, and yet, even in the period 1947 to 1955, the last chapter of the book, where, you know, he, he no longer holds public office, and says he's never going to run again, there's always this creeping interest in, in, in politics. No serious effort to really run, no serious effort to really even consider running for something. But, you know, you just, you just sort of wonder. You just sort of wonder if something had been handed to him on a silver platter, some sort of nomination for the Senate from Indiana, or maybe even New York where he was living. What might have happened? Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, what I, I, I'm doing, I'm, I've gone back to um, a study I was working on before I picked up Paul McNutt, and I've changed it a little bit as I've changed with McNutt. I mean, McNutt helped me to become more international in terms of what I, what I write about, so um, the Philippines and so on and so forth. So what I'm doing now is working on a book about um, American Indian policy, beginning in 1960 and ending in 1993, and comparing it with Australia's Aboriginal policies in that same period. So it's a, a comparison of the movement toward self-determination among indigenous people across the Pacific. So that trans-Pacific connection is still there. And I'm going back a little bit to my, uh, my roots with the Nixon administration, because Nixon was very active in changing American Indian policy in a very positive direction. So that's what I'm working on now, but I, I keep working on smaller projects related to Franklin Roosevelt and the Roosevelt era because it's all immensely fascinating. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. And thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you again.